Well, good afternoon. Uh, welcome to the North Carolina Court of Appeals. Uh, your panel today on my right is Judge Jeff Carpenter. On my left, Judge Fred Gore. Um, thank you to our clerk for the day, Mr. Sanders, and, and Deputy Marshal Remillard. Uh, we have one case for argument on the calendar today. Um, uh, Sneed v. Johnston. Um, it appears the parties are ready to proceed. And uh, if we're ready, we'll hear from the appellant. Good afternoon. Uh, may it please the court. I'm Nick Cushing. I represent the plaintiff um, appellant in this case, Jason Sneed. And by way of um, background and introduction to the case, the parties to this equitable distribution case are husband and wife, formerly husband and wife. Um, the plaintiff appellant, Jason Sneed, and the defendant appellee, Charity Johnston, were married on August 17th of 1996. They separated on January 5th of 2015, and they were divorced on March 8th of 2016. Now, my client, Mr. Sneed, is an attorney licensed in North Carolina. At all times relevant to this appeal, Mr. Sneed has been um, actively engaged in the practice of law in North Carolina. Uh, during the marriage in 2011, Mr. Sneed started a law firm known as Sneed PLLC. So there's, so there's no contention that any, any part of the, the, the law firm itself, setting aside the, the goodwill arguments for the moment, but there's no, there, there was no separate component that was brought into the marriage. I, I, that's correct. Okay. Yes, sir. Yes, it was started during the marriage. Um, the goodwill argument is our contention as to why it would be partially separate property or an entirely separate property. Um, just three and a half years after he started the firm, then the parties separated. So um, Mr. Sneed commenced this action by filing a complaint on January 5th of 2015, and then an amended complaint on June 11th of 2015, which included, among other things, a claim for equitable distribution. Um, and then Ms. Johnston filed her answer, counterclaim, and motion for interim distribution on July 6th of 2015. Now, prior to the time this case was called for trial, the court entered a consent order which resolved all issues related to equitable distribution except for issues related to Sneed PLC. So it left open the classification, valuation, and distribution of the law firm. On May 2nd, 2019, the trial court entered a consent order which appointed Greg Reagan as the expert to um, provide both a date of separation and a present value of Sneed PLC. On March 6th of 2020, Mr. Reagan then provided the parties with a final calculation of value uh, as of both the date of separation and as of March 6th of 2020. However, on December 14th of 2020, Ms. Johnston then separately engaged Mr. Reagan to value Sneed PLLC as of the party's date of separation. So the party's remaining claims for equitable distribution, the issues related to the valuation, classification, distribution of Sneed PLLC, were heard on December 2nd, 2021 and December 10th of 2021 in Mecklenburg, Mecklenburg County District Court before Judge Gary L. Henderson. And on January 12th of 2022, Mr. Sneed filed a motion to strike the testimony and reports of Mr. Reagan. Um, and each party thereafter submitted written closing arguments. On July 13th, Judge Henderson emailed his decision to the parties, but his decision was not entered as an order at that time. Counsel, yes. the, the challenge to Mr. Reagan's testimony is just based upon the court's 
determination of the calculation, not any of the qualifications of Mr. Reagan, correct? So there are, and, and I forgot to ask this at the beginning, if I could reserve five minutes for rebuttal, I apologize. Just looked at the clock and <laughs> realized it slipped my mind. Um, yes, there's actually two parts to the challenge to Mr. Reagan's testimony. The first part is that we contend it was improper for him, after having been a court-appointed expert, to then go behind the back of Mr. Sneed and prepare a report acting solely as Ms. Johnston's expert. The second part is a challenge to the, um, to the classification of all of Sneed PLC as marital property. Thank you. Yes, sir. Um, so uh, if we look at, I guess jumping off from there, if we look at kind of the overview of our issue, the issues with the trial court's order, there are numerous problems with the trial court's order that we contend require this court to overturn the order and direct the trial court to uh, correct it on appeal. First, the trial court improperly included both personal goodwill and enterprise goodwill of Sneed PLC as marital property. Um, in finding of fact 45, the trial court indicated that it considered evidence concerning the goodwill of the business. The finding states that, quote, the court made its determination of the existence of goodwill using the assistance of Mr. Reagan's testimony. And then in finding of fact 46, the trial court even specifically found that out of the roughly $3.1 million valuation of Sneed PLC, $2,688,321 was the personal goodwill of Mr. Sneed and just 411,679 was the enterprise goodwill of Sneed PLC. But we've, we've always treated goodwill as, as part of uh, the valuation of, of businesses um, as, as it relates, particularly as it relates to these sort of family law equitable distribution cases. Um, wh why, why even draw the distinction between enterprise goodwill and personal goodwill in this case when we've, we've never done that before, we've just treated it as goodwill? That's what makes this case so fascinating is that it appears to be a case of first impression in North Carolina. There's certainly, like you pointed out, cases um, that talk about goodwill, but those cases, if you look at them, really talk about the goodwill of the business or of the practice. So the reason why we need to separate out the personal goodwill from the enterprise goodwill is because of the uh, inequity of including personal goodwill in the value of the what, Explain, I don't, I don't understand the inequity. Sure. I mean, it, so if we look at, looking at kind of what other courts of other states have done, right? Uh, as far as I was able to discern in our research, we weren't able to find any other courts of any other states that have examined this issue and determined that, uh, that personal goodwill is a marital asset. All the other states that have examined this have determined personal goodwill to be the separate asset of that spouse. And that's because, and I was looking for the quote here that I've got for you. Um, you know, one of the problems with classifying personal goodwill as marital property is, this is, comes from both the Oklahoma Supreme Court and the Wisconsin Court of Appeals, and all this is, of course, said in a brief, but they've noted that there is, this is a quote, there is a disturbing inequity in compelling a professional practitioner to pay a spouse a share of intangible assets at a judicially determined value that could not be realized by a sale or another method of liquidating value. But isn't, isn't that sort of, sort of inherently the problem anytime you're, you're valuing a sole proprietorship, um, and particularly one here that was 
it was clearly created and started during the marriage and, and, and is marital property in and of itself. I mean, isn't, isn't, isn't that inherent? So that cuts exactly to the heart of, of <laughs> what this issue in this appeal is about. If you look at personal goodwill, what we're really talking about in that case is valuing the practitioners, in this case, Mr. Sneed's future earnings, right? Because in order for the personal goodwill to have any value to it, it's dependent on his ongoing reputation, it's dependent on his ongoing work. But, but, isn't, but isn't that goodwill of, of this practice, was that not created during the marriage as, as part of the fruits of the marital labor? Mm -hmm. and, and, and that's a great question. So I've got a few answers for, for why personal goodwill shouldn't be marital property, even though it was certainly based on, at least in part, his actions during the marriage, right? The first reason is because it's personal to Mr. Sneed. It lives with him and it dies with him. And there is no way for him to sell this personal goodwill to someone else. So any value placed on it is entirely fictional and entirely hypothetical. In his report, Greg Reagan, uh, Ms. Johnson's expert, defined fair market value. And he defined fair market value at, as the price at which property would change hands between a willing hypothetical buyer and a willing hypothetical seller, right? Neither being under the compulsion to do the exchange. And both parties having reasonable knowledge of facts. And he further clarified, Mr. Reagan further clarified that market value assumes that the price is paid in either cash or cash equivalents. So if the standard is fair market value, but the asset isn't something that can actually be bought or sold, then there can't be a fair market value, right? How do we, how do we determine the fair market value of something that Mr. Sneed cannot take and sell to somebody else? There can't be a hypothetical buyer. We can't put a value on it. And so to try to do that creates a fiction, creates a hypothetical. Um, the second reason is because, as I touched on a minute ago, it's based on Mr. Sneed continuing to work. I guess, counsel, yes, sir. in going in that same line of thinking, your logic is that there can't be a quote-unquote fair market value put on it. But in the process of what is being done, I guess the defendant is not looking at fair market value, the defendant is ultimately looking at the value as it pertains just to Mr. Sneed and how that was affected while she was married to Mr. Sneed. So is the right analysis looking at trying to assess fair market value versus the value as it pertains just to your client? Well, that's a good question. The, my answer to that would be it was Ms. Johnston, the defendant's own witness, who said that the standard we're looking at is fair market value. That was her own witness who said that. And it has to be. That's, I think, in equitable distribution law, and I apologize, I don't have a case reference, case name specific to give you to that, but the way I've always seen it done is we are applying when we are valuing, right? There's a, there's a three-step approach. We have to classify, we have to value, and we have to divide. Mm -hmm. When we're doing the second step of valuing the asset, that is a fair market value determination of that asset. I guess, and, and my question is not necessarily um, does that prevent it from going to the third step. It's just 
it affects the calculation. So again, I, I, I guess it goes back, I'm asking maybe a little nuanced question, but I guess it still goes back to Judge Hampson's question about the classification of it prior to. So I, I, I apologize for kind of stepping in on his question, but I think as we get to that next step for the calculation, I, I, I would like to hear that question flushed out a little bit more. I'm sorry, I, I, I didn't understand. I can re-ask it once you kind of finish going down your analysis to finish addressing it. Okay, I obviously want to make sure I answer your question. You, to the point that you did, yes, but I'll, I'll re-ask it whenever you get further in your your. Okay, discussion. that sounds good, thank you. So yeah, I appreciate it. The, the second thing that I would point out, Judge Hampson, to answer, answer your question, is if we look at 50-20, um, it defines marital property as property that was acquired during the marriage, before the date of separation, and presently owned. Those are the elements of marital property. So the marital estate freezes at the date of separation. It is based on the assets that exist in the marital estate at that time. But in order for Mr. Sneed's personal goodwill to have any value, he has to continue working. If but but that's, isn't that always the case in a business valuation in any context, whether it's for the purposes of, of selling the business? I mean, goodwill is a component. And we're reliant on, on expert valuators to determine mm -hmm. its worth, you know, whether perhaps there is a, a discount or, or some function that would reduce the value of that dependent on, you know, the individual uh, involvement in the business. I mean, and what we have here is we have the expert report that says, yes, this is the fair market value and it, on the date of separation. And it seems to me very little evidence, if any, to the contrary which gets you to exactly the point of, of that, why this distinction is so important. If you have enterprise goodwill, the value of the business itself, and Judge Henderson assigns the business to Mr. Sneed and assigns a distributive award to compensate Ms. Johnston, Mr. Sneed can take that enterprise goodwill and he can immediately sell the business he can take the cash that he gets from that goodwill and then he can pay off the distributive award to Ms. Johnston. But if we're including the personal goodwill in that value, Mr. Sneed doesn't have that ability. The personal goodwill isn't something he can sell. So now his only way to pay that distributive award is to keep working. And the problem is that now we're assigning Ms. Johnston a share of Mr. Sneed's future income which looks a whole lot like alimony, but without the ability to modify it. So if something happens, if Mr. Sneed becomes disabled and can't work, if Mr. Sneed, if there's a change in the law that affects his, his practice area and reduces his client base, if there is, he's falsely accused of malpractice or some unethical behavior that tarnishes his reputation, any of those things She's gotten the value of because we've taken this personal goodwill as a snapshot in time, but yet his reputation has suffered. The value of that goodwill has gone down and he doesn't have any way to come back to the court and say, hey, circumstances have changed because it's an equitable distribution order, right? So it's not modifiable in the future. And that is the great, the quote, disturbing inequity that the Moore case that we cited in our brief was talking about, and that the other cases, I think it was the Wisconsin Court of Appeals. Council, taking that same thought, mm -hmm. the calculation towards her versus selling it on the open market, mm -hmm. 
would your analysis be the same or your, your fact pattern that you just explained, selling it on the open market that he couldn't, would it be the same if he was bought out by a bigger family practice, criminal defense practice, and he was staying on to work for that bigger practice? Would, would your example that you explained, would he not be able to argue that he could sell it to them for a larger price because he was staying on with that firm? And, and Mr. Sneed testified that about that at the trial. And if you'd like, I can go back and find the exact uh, transcript pages and send to you. But what he said was, in the entire time he's practiced, he's never had an offer to buy his firm. But what he has had is offers where people have come to him and said, let us buy your firm. When he's explored that, it was really, let us hire you on, mm -hmm. you bring your clients with you, and we'll put you on an eat-what-you-kill type of situation. Yeah. And so his testimony was that his personal goodwill isn't actually worth anything because nobody's buying him, right? And the state bar says clients are not a commodity that can be bought and sold. Mm -hmm. So he can't take his reputation and leverage it into anything other than a new job, right? A new job where then he's still just having to work and maintain that relationship with the clients and keep doing what he's been doing. But he can't take his personal goodwill and go to another firm, whether similar type of law or not, and say, here, why don't you guys buy this personal goodwill for me and then sail off into the sunset? Just well, would, but wouldn't that be his selling point to be able to keep those clients, you know, obviously with him versus leaving and going away? It would be, but there's not going to be a tangible cash lump sum value for that. His selling point is, I don't want to have the administrative nightmares of running my own firm anymore, so I'll come and work for you guys. And maybe he can negotiate a decent salary that way. Mm -hmm. But he's certainly not going to be able to negotiate them giving him a one a 3.1 million dollar lump sum payout just for bringing himself and whatever clients he might have along with him right right um so uh the other thing to point out and just kind of to wrap up i guess judge hampson your question is this was really addressed in the poor case that cited in both of our briefs and what the poor case told us is that when um, that, that valiant goodwill based on the future efforts of the spouse, so the personal goodwill, they didn't use that word, but it's not a proper valuation. Specifically, the holding in poor, one of the holding in poor's was, quote, any legitimate method of valuation that measures the present value of goodwill by taking into account past results and not the post-marital efforts of the professional spouse is a proper method of valuing goodwill. So if it takes into account the post-marital efforts of the professional spouse, Poor tells us that it's not a proper method of valuing the goodwill. And that's what gets us to, although Poor didn't make the distinction, that's what gets us to the personal goodwill being improper. Because of the, as the Moore Court and the other courts have noted, what personal goodwill really is, is just a way of valuing the future efforts and the future income of that spouse. And that's what creates that inequity that they were talking about. Um, but isn't, isn't that exactly what the business valuation and, and then, you know, and as you say, sort of freezing the marital estate 
as of the date of separation for purposes of valuing marital property. Isn't, isn't that exactly what this, this valuation does? It gives you the valuation on the date of separation, which in all business valuations is necessarily going to be a predictive, there's a predictive nature of it, right? Like, what, is, is this a, a going concern? The difference is that in a business valuation where we're valuing the enterprise goodwill, that is something that's tangible. The valuator can say, if we look at whatever, discounted cash flow method, right? We've got, based on that, a willing buyer would likely come in and buy this from you. Today. Today, for X number of dollars, and you don't have to have any more involvement in this business, Mr. Sneed, because you've now sold your business to this person for X number of dollars. When we're valuing the personal goodwill, what we're saying is, this is, this is the, based on the you know, future cash flows of the business, your reputation, your relationships with people. So all of those future cash flows go away if Mr. Sneed stops working or if he dies or if he retires or if a million other things happen. What, what, well, let me put this, was there personal goodwill in the business from your perspective on the date of separation? That's a hard question to answer. I, and yeah, the reason for yeah, that. And, the, and that's always kind of the, what, yeah. you know, what is this concept of goodwill generally? What does that actually involve, right? right? But what, I mean, and, and um, but yeah, that sort of, that sort of follows. Like, how do you, how does one create personal goodwill? Well, the reason that I say that's a hard question to answer is because if you look at Mr. Sneed's testimony, on the date of separation, the business was basically worth the assets, right? What was the money in the account? Because his position that he took at trial was my ongoing efforts aren't worth anything. My business is based on an asset valuation. If you look at um, Mr. Reagan's valuation, which the court found to be credible, so I'm not really in a position to stand here and tell you, you know, it's not. If you look at Mr. Reagan's valuation, then yeah, there was personal goodwill that existed on the date of separation. But Mr. Reagan could not have been more clear, Ms. Johnston's expert could not have been more clear that in his opinion, the personal goodwill should not have been included in the marital estate. And that's what's a little bit perplexing about this whole appeal is that the position that Ms. Johnston is now taking um, not only swaps horses from the position that she took through her expert at trial, but it asks the court to pretend like that first horse never even existed. Let's ignore this whole discussion, multiple pages of Mr. Reagan's written report um, that you all have in our Rule 90 documents. Let's ignore this whole discussion he got where, where he cited these articles and he cited everything and said unequivocally, I agree with that. And let's now just stick to the idea that this personal goodwill should be included in the marital estate. And, um, and I would contend that that is a swapping of forces, which, of course, as we all know, you're not entitled to do. I, I also want to give you an opportunity to talk about the divisible property issue that you've raised, and, and yeah, you know, what, and, and discussing how, you know, this, what, if you touch yeah. on that before you hit your rebuttal time. Yes, Your Honor. So there's a couple of issues, and I got to go quick with the divisible property. The first one is that we know from all of the evidence that the value of Sneed PLLC at the date of trial was not the same as the value as of the date of 
separation. What evidence was there of, of date of trial valuation? So the evidence, there wasn't an exact, well, there was two things. One was Mr. Sneed's testimony, that as of the date of trial, the value of the firm was negative $70,000. That was his testimony. What Greg Reagan presented was a valuation of, I've got it in my notes here, but I'm short on time, uh, a valuation of sometime prior to trial, a few months or so, maybe a year prior to trial, uh, where the value had gone down by a million dollars from the date of separation. It went from 3.1 to 2.1. Now, if you look at the divisibility, uh, the, the, the definition of divisible property, it doesn't say that we have to have, it says, you know, divisible property is valued as of the date of distribution, but it doesn't tell us that there has to be a specific date of trial valuation. If the most recent value we have was whatever Mr. Reagan's second date was, then there was no evidence in the record to indicate that that wasn't also the date of separation value. In other words, it's problematic and improper if we know that the value went down from the date of separation to this point in future where Mr. Reagan valued it, then we know that the date of separation value isn't accurate, and we know there's a divisible property component, and so for the court to not include that divisible property is an error. And the court only has to include something if there's credible evidence on it. So we don't have any... If you take Mr. Sneed's value, we have credible evidence that it was worth negative 70000 Which um, the trial court said, which, found was not credible. The trial court... I didn't mean to cut you off. No, 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 you're fine. And I, the, now you're getting into rebuttal time. So the, the trial court simultaneously found Mr. Sneed's testimony to be credible and also simultaneously disregarded it. Um, so if you ignore his, what we've got is Mr. Reagan valuing it as of whatever date it was that he had 2.1 million and then no other credible evidence that the value changed after that time. So I would contend to you that the divisible component is the value as of Mr. Reagan's latest, um, his last appraisal. Um, are there any other questions before I sit down? I realize I'm... Yeah. Okay. Thank you, and we'll give you a few extra seconds in your rebuttal. Sounds good. Thank you, Your Honor. We'll hear from the appellee. May it please the court. Judges Hampson, Carpenter, and Gore, my name is Michelle Connell. I represent the defendant appellee, Charity Johnston. Your honors, this case is not a case of first impression. Um, the valuation of goodwill within a closely held corporation was decided by this court in Poor versus Poor in 1985. That was shortly after the codification of our ED statute in 1981. The core court 
said that in valuing a professional association, the court shall clearly state whether it finds the practice to have any goodwill, and if it's so, its value and how it arrived at the value. The duty of a trial court in an ED case is to determine what the marital property is, what the divisible property is, and then make an equitable distribution of those properties. 50-20B1 gives us a definition of marital property, and marital property is all real and personal property acquired by either spouse or both spouses during the course of the marriage before the date of separation. And it's presumed that all property that is uh, acquired during the marriage from the date of marriage to the date of separation is presumed that's marital. Now the definition of separate property is really limited to about four or five um, types of property. Separate property under 50-20B2 states that all real and personal property acquired by a spouse before the marriage, during the marriage by gift, bequest, or descent, income derived from separate property, an increase in separate property, and then it carves out professional licenses that, that terminate upon the transfer of those licenses. That's separate property. That's it. There is no reference to goodwill. And your honors, it's pretty radical what the appellant is trying to make us do today. They're asking us to create an entirely new category of separate property, and that is this issue of personal goodwill. Counsel, uh, opposing, opposing counsel draws out in a brief the distinction from poor, which I think was a dentist. Yes, sir. Uh, can you address their, their attempt to draw the difference between you know, dentist practice versus a law practice and what, what that addresses. Can you address that for us? Yes, sir. Um, it is, it's very similar in that they are both professional licenses that cannot be transferred. And they both have a component of goodwill. And what the, the poor court said that it agreed that the component of goodwill is the most controversial and it's the most difficult to value. It's this intangible asset. Um, but it's clear that the poor court said, it's clear that it does have a value and that it has limited marketability. So that's exactly the same. Um, it specifically said, the court said, goodwill of a professional practice is property with value and should be included among the assets distributed upon the dissolution of the marriage. And you cannot distribute an asset unless it's a marital asset. That's what the trial court is tasked with doing. And that's where we are, Your Honor. So in other words, goodwill within a marital asset is part of the marital estate that's subject to ED. Your Honor, if we look at um, goodwill within a professional practice, um, the legislature could have, in fact, decided that goodwill, personal goodwill within, a per, within this practice is separate property and we know that it could have would have done that because they have done it with professional licenses they've carved out the succession for professional licenses the legislature could have carved out an exception for personal goodwill within a professional practice but it did not and it was the wisdom of the poor court of this court not to bifurcate goodwill into personal and enterprise personal goodwill or excuse me goodwill and make personal goodwill separate and enterprise goodwill marital because that would wreak havoc 
on our ED statute and what the trial court's supposed to do. Would, would you agree that we are, we're, we're dependent from a judicial perspective on, on experts to, to value things like goodwill within a business Absolutely. evaluation? And so from a factual standpoint in this case, we, we have this interesting scenario where you have an expert that actually did break out the valuation mm -hmm. and, and your expert broke out the different types of, of, of goodwill valuation, the enterprise and personal. Um, and then uh, a trial judge that made findings to that effect, tracking that. So, you know, just from a factual standpoint, I, I mean, I'm not sure I've seen, and, and you can tell me, I, I don't know of a case that has differentiated between, or, or an expert valuation that's differentiated, at least in our jurisprudence, that's differentiated between those two items. Why wouldn't that then be uh, a determination for the trial court to make as to what should properly be included in the, in the valuation? I have not seen that either, Your Honor, uh, because it's not the law. <laughs> I, I, just because a expert says, well, there's goodwill, some of it's personal, some of it's enterprise, it doesn't, it doesn't make it the law. But an expert, it but an expert it could say, well, you know, I, I reach a certain valuation based on the fact that it's a sole proprietorship that it, that whose value is largely in the individual itself. And, and for, for that reason, you know, that, you know, I'm discounting or, or putting a different weight on whatever factor that's included in my valuation that brings the value down to a certain point, you know, or I'm, or I'm discarding these factors, these values, this, this, I'm discarding the personal goodwill and a trial court could say, you know what, I think that's a perfectly reasonable valuation. And I agree. To the extent that you could say this is personal goodwill, you don't have to say it's separate property. It affects the marketability. It affects, it, that's a discount factor. So if, if it's, you know, someone's law firm and they are the law firm and they leave, well, that means that that's a lower value on that law firm. But that's not what this expert decided. This, this expert decided under Hamby that, that it's not, it, there's no discount in marketability. But, it, but it's again, to go to your point, whether it's enterprise or personal goodwill, it's something, personal goodwill just affects whether or not this is going to be worth 3.1 million or if it's gonna be 8.3 million. And that's where the different, that's where personal goodwill is not lost in the mix. Counsel, and, and I understand this is not the norm as far as what you've seen from expert, you know, appraisers for a business. But would it not be a useful tool for a trial judge in evaluating the personal versus the enterprise, regardless of the calculation determination? Um, I mean, the, uh, the classification. Wouldn't that be a useful tool if there was gonna be a sale of the business, you know, basically doing away with the business and everybody walking away versus buying out, you know, a party from the business? Yes, sir, I agree that, that personal goodwill is worth knowing within a business if you're gonna sell it. Because, and then is the, the person who garners this goodwill, are they going with the business or are they not going with the business? So I, I don't disagree with that. I just believe that when you start carving out separate property and marital property within a business, that's when, when the chaos happens. 
And, and to that point, if we decide that, if this court decides, excuse me, that uh, separate property, or excuse me, personal goodwill is separate property, then we have to look at the definition of separate property within our statute. And our definition in separate, separate property is that any increase in value is separate property or income derived from separate property is considered separate property, which means in the actual practice of law is that we have a business and there's personal goodwill and the court decides that personal goodwill is separate property. That means everything, all the income that's derived from that personal property, which is separate property, is separate property. And everything, so we're going to have to trace it all the way back and say, well, there was a 40% personal property in that separate property. So 40% of everybody's in retirement that was saved during the marriage, is that separate property? It, it's, it just, it's untenable what can happen if we go down this road. And so putting a dual property classification on goodwill, it, it not only presents this chaotic tracing, it also flies in the face of what our law is now. And it, it's under Blair that has this general idea, but, um, or this, it's not general idea, it's actually the law. Um, from, if I had a, a firm, a law firm, pre-marriage, and um, it, that's my separate property. But on the date of marriage, all my active work in that law firm is marital property. And that's what our law is. But to then say, but the goodwill within that law firm is separate, so and any active work I do is separate, and it just, I don't see how we break this out in an equitable distribution case. And again, it's a legislative issues because we're trying to say now personal goodwill within a professional business is separate property and that's a whole new classification of separate property that goes beyond what our statute addresses and what our statute allows. Could we not address the issue from the perspective of enterprise goodwill is marketable? That's, that's the value of the business that you're selling. But personal goodwill is not property at all because it has no marketability. Just instead of saying it's separate, we could just say it's not property. It's it's not marketable property that would otherwise be either separate or marital property. Therefore, uh, it's not to be included in the in the divis division of mar of the marital estate. I believe that since our case law has established that. Goodwill is a value yep, and asset to be. Then agreed, but the case law says nothing about personal goodwill or enterprise goodwill. It says goodwill. It was other case law, other cases from other states that have fleshed out. There's there's two classifications of goodwill, mm -hmm. which we didn't do back in 1985 when poor was decided, and the cases from uh, Oklahoma and Wisconsin are both more recent that that flesh that out. So my, back to my question. Is, would it not be possible for this court to just determine that the personal goodwill has no marketability, therefore is not property at all? I don't believe just because it doesn't have marketability makes it not property. Uh, of course, this court can do whatever it wants, uh, but uh, I, I don't believe that you, you can just discount an aspect of the business. And, and the reason I, I say that, again, I, 
personal goodwill, whatever, if it's not separate property and it's not marketable, it's by not being marketable in and of itself, it, it goes to, it's a discount count. It goes to the marketability of the business, yeah. which would in turn lower it. Equitable but, distribution claim is filed. Um, the husband owns the law practice in the case, dies the next day. His estate can still prosecute that, uh, that equitable distribution claim. What's the, what is the personal goodwill at that point? He's dead. Right. Hmm. And the way that we are tasked with valuing these properties is to look at it frozen on the date of separation and looking back on it. And so you would look back and say during prior to between the date of marriage and the date of separation, what was the goodwill, personal and enterprise, whatever, however you want to say it. How do we sell the time? dead guy's personal goodwill? Again, that would go, we, we can't. I mean, because it's not going forward. But that's not what an expert does. The experts, it's uh, it's an odd sort of uh, limbo that they're in because they look back as at the date of separation and, and, and value it. They're supposed to ignore the three years that happened to actually see what happened with the business. They're supposed to look at it at that frozen date and time. So you have to sort of suspend this common sense. So. Your Honor, that is sort of the same thing is that every time we have a case in ED and it's a, you know, one man show and he goes, well, you know, and I'll just quit tomorrow. And then there is no business and there is nothing to value. And, and so it's, it's not, it's not unusual that you're valuing goodwill without maybe the, the person being involved. You have to look at it from that date prior to. I don't think I described that very well. But. I agree with you 100% as to enterprise goodwill. Uh, it, it's the personal goodwill piece that's harder to put in a box. I agree. Uh, and if, I think if, there is a, if there is two separate aspects to goodwill, uh, there's no case law in this state that I'm aware of that's, that separates the two. So. No, sir, there is not. That, that. So they may, be all, they may all be the same. Um, and that would be our preference. Of course. <laughs> um, whether going off that or, or not, um, the thing that Poor did in when it determined goodwill to be marital, it and didn't divide out separate or, or, or marital components within goodwill, is that it complied with the purpose of the ED statute. And our, the ED statute. It recognizes that marriage is a partnership and that working hard to grow a business during the marriage and putting in those hours for a family is, is valuable, as is staying home and taking care of children and managing a household. That's equally valuable. And, you know, moms at home can't get credit for personal goodwill at the PTA. It's sort of the same, you know, idea that these roles are taken. And in our 50-20C6, uh, when it's talking about distributive awards um, or distributive factors, the, the statute acknowledges that one of the things to consider is the uh, contributions of a homemaker, which is personal goodwill. Counsel, on the, on, and you're bringing this up, and I was thinking about it a little bit ago. <clears throat> the statutory scheme doesn't allow there to be a separation. And that, that's what you talked about earlier. Yes, 
However, using the opposite of what you just said, two professionals, one with a professional license, one in a corporate setting, marry, but they don't want to be under one household, no children, and they both live separate and apart, doing one in one city, other one, they meet on the weekends, and that's how they make it work. Ten years go by, they keep it that same way. And then they say, you know what, this isn't working anymore. There's no joint household that's been maintained. There's no children. There's no PTA. But the professional says, hey, well, I've been in this separate city, going to the chamber meetings, going to bar meetings, developing my own goodwill. The statute doesn't allow it. However, this could cut both ways, regardless of who's arguing it on what given day. Could that be a factual scenario where there's no nexus to the marital unit and that goodwill has not really been stimulated by the commingling of one household and the support of, you know, a homemaking situation to where that argument by, you know, the husband actually carries water? where that goodwill has been by that professional who owns the license and has not been stimulated or supported in any direct way, and in essence, has been in a bubble in a 200-mile radius away. Is that a scenario where that argument actually would maintain to where that goodwill has been completely on that professional licensed person by themselves? Um, yes, I don't believe that it's as easy uh, but I believe Especially that it's not, there's no statutory scheme saying how it works, but just from a, a point of theory, right. in, in contrast to what you just described, it, it, it seems that that would be the counter argument, right? Well, what I would argue, Your Honor, is that yes, he's here in a bubble and she's here in a bubble. Her agreeing to be in this bubble and let him be in or this one and them, do whatever. Them agreeing to be in that bubble. Yes, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's right. Fair. Um, okay. That that they agreeing to stay in their own bubbles is part of encouraging you to do whatever with your 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 own personal goodwill. So I, I don't think it's quite as easy, but I think it's there as part of a marital. So, kind of following along on that line of questioning, what? Could personal goodwill have been considered as uh, a, dis a distributional factor in determining whether there should be an equal or unequal yes. distribution of the marital estate? Um, yeah. And that's, you know, it's one of these, these, these piecemeal ED cases where you don't just value the marital estate as a whole, you try and break out these assets and components and then value them individually and distribute them individually. Is, is, it can be problematic. I mean, what was, what was, I mean, there was, I, I gathered the rest of the marital estate had been distributed. Right. What was the, what was the distribution on that? Was it 50-50 or, or? Your Honor, I believe it. Well, I'm sorry, I didn't, I but I guess, I guess there, nowhere in, in the distribution of the, uh, of the law firm, the valuation, value of the law firm, was that factored into, into distributional factors, purposes of determining, well, Maybe he's entitled to a 75% share of the marital estate versus 25% share because of all the work he put in that created this extensive personal goodwill. And I agree, Your Honor. I think that's where it would have, should have fallen. But there was no evidence presented at trial about the distributional factors, and therefore the trial court could not have made that or considered it. 
And, and I agree that if this had been um, determined all at once instead of 90% over here and the, the law firm over here, then maybe we would have gotten to the distributional factors, but we didn't. But I believe that that's probably where something like this would have come. Um, if, if there's no other questions about... I want to give you an opportunity. There's a second piece to this in regards to Mr. Reagan's acceptability as an expert, that was an issue that uh, the appellant raised. Do you want to say anything about that, whether Mr. Reagan should have been allowed to, to be called? Yes, sir. Thank you for that opportunity. Um, there is this idea that the secret business, it, the findings of fact lay it out pretty closely or pretty clearly in this case. Um, the testimony, the email from the judge, here's what happened. The appellant repeatedly failed to respond to Mr. Reagan's communications. He repeatedly failed to pay Mr. Reagan's invoices as ordered by the court. He failed to cooperate with Mr. Reagan in a timely manner in providing or facilitating the production of requested information, documentation, access, or anything needed for the expert witness to accomplish his terms. He has thrown up these roadblocks. There are 33 findings of fact that established that he did not uh, cooperate or comply with the court order uh, to help Mr. Reagan come to his valuation. And um, it wasn't until Ms. Johnston actually paid the invoice so he could, could continue. The appellant was provided the report, I believe a few, three, four months before the trial, so he had that. And, Your Honor, I think that if we don't accept, I mean, and there's, I think, 15 months where husband refused to communicate with Mr. Reagan um, after repeated efforts from Mr. Reagan. We should not, he did not have clean hands. We should not reward that type. He was in violation of the court order by not paying the invoices. And so at some point, it was to turn this calculation of value, which is what it was, into a opinion of value, I think was entirely appropriate in this case. Um, the, and to address the uh, distributive award uh, issue, or, or excuse me, the divisible award issue, it's sort of the same thing. Um, the trial court, you know, can only classify and value and distribute based on the evidence before the trial court. And in this case, neither party offered a date of distribution value with competent evidence. But the, the Reagan report itself does give a value post-date of separation, granted prior to trial. You know, what do, we, what do we do with that? That appears to be some evidence of a divisible component. Yes, but divisible, divisible property is defined as of the date of distribution. And so there was, since there's no value, I, I, I don't disagree that there may be evidence that was trending down, but who knows, on the date of distribution, there could have been five new clients and it could have skyrocketed back up. I don't know. But the trial court could not make a date of distribution value because Mr. Sneed was not complying with the court order and was not cooperating. And then his testimony as to the divisible property that it was a negative value, and, and contrary to my, my, my esteemed colleague, 
the trial court out now said that it's not credible and his, his evidence isn't credible. So I think, Your Honor, in that respect, you know, it's almost there. But if, we, but if he had made a date of distribution value and then addressed the divisible property, we could be here arguing that he couldn't have made that value because it was incompetent evidence on the date of distribution for the, to, to make that value. I have five minutes left, and unless um, there are any further questions, Your Honors, I would just ask this court, thank you so much for your time today, and um, I would ask this court that um, we continue uh, determining that goodwill is based is marital uh, asset and that it is part of the marketability of a professional con uh, a professional firm and that it not be relabeled as separate property thank you thank you if you're ready we'll hear from you on rebuttal thank you um, I just have a couple of points from Ms. Cannell's argument that I'd like to respond to. Um, the first one is, uh, I think she said that separate property is limited to the four or five items listed in the statute. If I was going to kind of paraphrase her argument and put my own spin on it, I would say that her argument is that separate property is defined by the statute except for where it isn't. And what I mean by that is that um, there are times where something is excluded from the marital estate, even though it's not specifically set out in the statute. And one of those um, is the, the case of Haywood versus Haywood, which is cited in our brief, holds that an advanced degree, like a master's degree, is not property to be included in the division of the marital estate. And Judge Carpenter, when you were questioning Ms. Cannell, you kind of touched on the argument of, well, couldn't we just say that uh, that the personal goodwill just isn't property at all, basically, right? And that is exactly what the Haywood case did with an advanced degree. They didn't carve it out as separate property. They just said, we're going to find that an advanced degree is not property at all for purposes of equitable distribution. And then, Judge Hampson, you asked if it shouldn't be considered as a distributional factor. And that is also what the Haywood case did, was they said it's not... Uh, marital property to be considered in the marital estate, but it can be considered as a distributional factor. So the Haywood case resolves both of those questions that you were asking Miss um, Cannell about, and it it aligns with what we're saying, which is that it wouldn't be appropriate to include that personal goodwill in the marital estate. The counsel, second counsel on that issue yes. of it being included or not, how do you address the factual scenario that I flushed out? And you know, opposing counsel acknowledge if there was a bubble, she couldn't argue that it wouldn't be. We don't have a bubble. There's one household. There's interactions. There's a unit. Address for me how the interaction of that unit operating as one has not attributed, in some way, shape, form, or fashion, to the professional licensed person benefiting from that support and then their goodwill increasing and in benefit. I think it would be disingenuous for me to stand here and say that it hadn't. I mean, they, there wasn't a bubble, like you said. Um, my argument isn't that, that Mr. Sneed's reputation didn't increase during the marriage from some of the work that he was doing. Of course it did. 
my argument is that that personal goodwill, um, you're not, we're not going to find a perfect solution, right? There's always going to be situations where this result seems unfair to one or the other. The best that this court can do, it's not my job to tell you your job, but the best that this court can do is pick the solution that seems to make the most sense overall as a public policy. And as a public policy argument, when you've got an asset that we're valuing, that we're asking the spouse to pay tangible dollars to the other spouse to have distributed to them, but they can't take that asset and then turn around and sell it to get those tangible dollars to make the distributive award, that's a problematic situation from a public policy perspective. And I think that's the equity that, that at least I'm trying to balance for you in your, in your two situations. And it, it does cut both ways. Um, but the, uh, another thing I wanted to touch on is this idea that um, Ms. Connell argued that, that divisible property is defined as of the date of distribution. I'm not aware of any case law that tells us exactly what date of distribution means. What I mean by that is let's say we've got a home appraisal, but it was a week before trial. Is that okay? What if the home appraisal is from a month before trial? Is that okay? What about six months? I'm not aware of any case law that tells us exactly where that line is. I think that's a question for the trial court to decide when, when determining what's appropriate. Um, I see my time is up, but if there's any more questions, I'm of course happy. And I'll, I'll give you a few seconds to conclude since we okay. cut into your rebuttal Thank time you. earlier. Well, so what we're asking this court to do is to do a couple of things. One, uh, well, of course, remand back to the trial court, but one with instructions that the separate property component of Sneed PLLC is either to be declared separate property or just not to be included as part of the marital state. And then two, uh, to reopen the evidence. Um, this was, I didn't get a chance to talk about today, but it's dealt with in our brief. Reopen the evidence to take additional evidence on the um, change in value of Sneed PLLC from the date of separation um, well, really after the date of trial because of that delay in having the order entered. Um, and those would be the two primary things that we'd be asking this court to do. Thank you, Your Honors. I appreciate the chance to argue today. Thank you. Um, all right, the, the case will be submitted. I'd like to thank both uh, counsel for your excellent arguments and briefing today. And uh, that will uh, conclude this session of court for today. We're ready to adjourn.